There was a young boy who was visiting the house of an elderly woman in the congregation. He was actually with his pastor going on visitation, and this was a devout, dear lady that they were visiting. On the wall of her living room, there was a frame with a scripture text in the middle of it. It was taken from Genesis 16, the story of Hagar running away with Ishmael and all alone thinking that she was going to die and then God shows up and she gives him that unique name, uh, Ber Lahairoi, which means thou God seest me. And that's what was in the frame, thou God seest me. They sat down for the visit and the lady said to the little boy, I want you to read that text. And so he read it out loud, thou God seest me. She said, I want you to take that frame text home and put it up on your bedroom wall. And he thought to himself, no way. I mean, that's the last thing a little boy wants to be reminded of when he's getting into mischief, when he wants to do something, you know, that uh, maybe his parents, parents wouldn't approve. Certainly God wouldn't approve. And so to be reminded that God is watching his every move sounds, you know, pretty difficult. But then she said, My lad, when you get older, people will tell you that God is always watching you to see if you're doing something wrong so that he might correct you, so that he might punish you. But I don't want you to think of this text in that way. I want you to take this text home, put it on your bedroom wall, and every time you see it, I want you to remember that God loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. And that's the right perspective. We're studying the heroes of the faith from Hebrews chapter 11, and we're told that without faith it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You believe that he exists, you believe that he is good. And God is invisible, so this is something you must take by faith. Faith trades in the realm of the invisible. And so you and I need to embrace the scriptures about God's presence and God's watchful, loving eye over us to encourage us. We've been studying the life of Joseph, and again, we want to continue looking at the life of Joseph, so I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 39 as we look at this hero of the faith, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, the story of Joseph. Just to bring you up to date, Joseph is the 11th child of a family that's going to have 12 sons and one daughter, four mothers, and that complicates the situation. He was the favorite son of his father because he was the son of his old age and also the son of his favorite wife. And Because of that, he was given a coat of many colors, and his brothers hated him for the favoritism. He was a younger boy, but basically given the inheritance and the outward sign of favoritism with this multicolored coat. And so when the opportunity arose, the brothers took Joseph. They were far away from home. Joseph was there to report on their conduct back to his father. The brothers were going to kill him until Reuben, the eldest, who was responsible, said, let's not kill him, let's sell him, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites on their way down to Egypt as a slave. So we read in chapter 39 of Genesis, verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt 
Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, in fact, he was the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, you can imagine as we read in Psalm 105 that Joseph was probably put in chains once he was sold to the Ishmaelites, along with all the other slaves, and marched the long journey down to Egypt. Imagine the noisy streets of a metropolitan city, crowds of people, a festive atmosphere, except for the slaves. They're marched down Main Street and then paraded across an auction block, and then people began to bid, but Pharaoh gets the best of the best. And there his representative, Potiphar, captain of the guard, historians say maybe the chief executioner as well, living in a house beautifully decorated, covered with hieroglyphics, filled with slaves. He gets to bid on the best, and he sees Joseph, and he buys Joseph. And so the young man, with great promise, now becomes a domestic slave. Think of it. He goes from the soft life to the slave life. How would you feel? Abandoned by your siblings taken away from your home, from aristocracy to a certain degree, now into servitude. I don't know about you, but I would feel angry and abandoned and afraid and distressed and rejected. And you can just begin to add all of those feelings that you would naturally feel. I'm I'm sure Joseph felt the same thing. And the one insight into his character comes out of chapter 41, verse 14, where it said that uh, the brother said, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for his life to no avail. Wouldn't you think that God also abandoned you too? Now be honest. Wouldn't you feel that God had forsaken you and forgotten you? And yet God didn't forsake Joseph amidst all these inequities of life. In fact, this is God's plan. He's going to reveal himself to Joseph in an amazing way. Rather than being distant, in the midst of this difficulty, God is going to become personal and close. You say, well, where do you get that? I get that from the repeating phrase four times in chapter 39. First of all, in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him. Verse 21, the Lord was with him. Verse 23, because the Lord was with him. Do you think God was with Joseph? By the way, when you and I repeat things, it's because we forget or we're trying to fill up a term paper with content, at least with space, when we don't have any content. That's what happens when we repeat things. But when God repeats something, it's for emphasis, right? And you say, well, pastor, God is with everybody. Yeah, but not in the same way. There is God's omnipresence, which means he's everywhere present at once. He's with everyone in that sense. But then there is the special presence. That's what we're talking about here. God was with him. God was on his side. God was close to him. You ever been to a restaurant and it's rather crowded at the beginning and you're trying to get your table and the maitre d' will come up and 
and he'll see a group and, and he'll point to some other people and he'll say, are these people with you? And you'll say, no, uh, they're not with us, just a party of two. Now, they're standing right next to you. You could say, yeah, they're with us, but they're not, they're not with us. Try that sometime. Yeah, they're next to me, but they're not with me, right? So God is near everyone, but not with everyone. See the difference? But God is with Joseph. And one of the greatest blessings in life, maybe the, the greatest blessing is to have your sins forgiven and know him as your savior. The second greatest blessing in life, which is part of the first, is to know that God is on your side. He's with you. We read in Acts chapter 7 and verse 9, and I believe we have this verse on the screen. Uh, this is... Uh, a summary of Hebrew history where uh, Stephen talks about the patriarchs who were jealous of their brother and they sold him into Egypt as, as a slave. But God was with him and therefore rescued him. By the way, with him and rescue him, there's about a difference of 13 years. <laughs> Just to keep that in perspective. But the point is he rescued him from all his troubles. God, God's divine presence and special presence and felt presence was with Joseph and gave him, therefore, a unique perspective on all his problems. So we want to walk our way through chapter 39 just briefly and notice how God was with Joseph. And the first thing is simply to notice that God was with Joseph when he served in Potiphar's house, sold as a slave, and yet God is still with him. That's the context of verse 2 and verse 3. And just to, to dramatize it a little bit, remember, according to Psalm 105, he had his ankles, his feet, bruised with chains, and his neck was also placed in chains. You've seen the pictures of the slaves shuffling because their feet are in chains. And then neck to neck with the slave in front and behind of them. Joseph was in chains. And it would be so easy to say, God has forsaken me. But no, the scripture says God was with him. God had a purpose in all of this. And never neglected him. Now I don't know about you. But I have the tendency to easily get discouraged when things don't go the way I planned. Whether it's driving in traffic, whether it's planning my week, whatever it might be, I can easily get discouraged. This was a time of oppression for Joseph. He was indeed treated unjustly. And he could have cried out, but there's no retaliation at this point. There appears to be no revenge in his heart and mind, as we're going to see later. There's no rationalization. There's no loss of faith. And verse 2 tells us the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Interesting. The word prosperity and the word success in verse 3 are used of someone in prison. You and I need to redefine those two words. Prosperity is when you're in the will of God. And what you do, he blesses for eternal value. Success is pleasing God by faith, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 11. 
And others saw it, right? The Lord was with Joseph. He prospered in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, he put Joseph in charge of the whole household. Verse 4, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes and became his chief attendant, his right-hand man. He put him in charge of his household and trusted to him uh, the care of everything he owned. From time to time, he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned. The Lord blessed him. From that very time, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of God was on everything Potiphar had in the house and in the field. Did you ever think that the difficulty and oppression and trial of your life that has sent you into a place you don't want to be in is designed by God so that you could bless others? You're in the hospital and you don't want to be there. Maybe you're there to be a blessing to the nurse and to the doctor. We've got people attending our church from the medical community who are here because a patient from this church sought to share their testimony or an encouraging word to the doctor and nurse in the midst of their suffering. And I tell you, encouragement coming from a suffering person is all that more, much more impactful. Wow. Potiphar saw it. Potiphar's a wicked guy. I really don't know. Uh, but he probably is a pagan through and through. And he's now being blessed by the God of heaven because of Joseph. Others will see that God was with you. Now, I want you to know this. Outwardly, Joseph was owned by Potiphar. Inwardly, he was still owned of God. And Warren Worsby so rightly says, if the Lord controls you, it matters little who commands you. But I don't like my boss. I don't care about your boss who owns you. God does. And it matters little who commands you if you know that God owns you. There's a great story that comes out of the horrendous, horrible history of American slavery where men and women were taken from Africa and made into human property and sold as slaves. If you go to Charleston, South Carolina, at least this was true years ago, there was a historical place that still stood one of the very auction blocks that was used in that horrendous time of history. And on that very auction block, the guide would tell visitors to this place, there was a group of slaves being sold, but one stood taller than all the others. He seemed to be unafraid, keen of mind. It was evident in his every move. And this intrigued the bidders and brought even a higher price. Someone said to one of uh, the bidders, talking one uh, among each other, one said to another, how come that person is so different than everyone else? And the answer was this, back in Africa, he was the son of a king, and he's never forgotten it. That doesn't justify what's being done in any way. I'm just saying, in the midst of suffering, for someone to have an attitude, I know who I am, I know who I belong to, makes all the difference in the world. His perspective is on the sovereignty of God. 
God is with me, and I'm going to trust him. God has a plan. I don't understand it, but he's mine. I'm going to trust him, even in the midst of this situation. I will trust him where I cannot trace him. Years ago, we had a fantastic mission conference. They all are great. But I remember the one where, when Steve Saint was here. Steve Saint is the son of a missionary who was martyred in South America. He was a young enough boy to know his dad and love his dad and young enough to be perplexed by the loss of his dad. In that missions conference, when Steve was telling the story of the missionary martyrs in Ecuador, he quoted this poem. I stood as a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for a priceless gift that I could call my own. I took the gift out of his hand, but as I did depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift that thou hast given me, but he said, my child, I give good gifts. And I gave the best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt me sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I found he never gives a thorn without his added grace, and he takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. In other words, it's in the very difficult trials of life that God draws near. And you get to see God with you like you have never seen him before. That's the situation. And that's where Joseph found himself. Blessed in the midst of a situation he did not desire. And wanted to be rescued from. And so whatever situation you're in that you want to extract yourself from, nothing wrong with praying for God to deliver you. But in the midst of it, don't miss the blessing of seeing his presence and ministering to others. That's the chain. Secondly, I want you to know that God was with Joseph when he was sought by Potiphar's wife. This is an interesting situation. Look at uh, verse 6. Middle of the verse. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. That is used only four times in the Old Testament. My guess is there were some handsome individuals that aren't mentioned, but it's mentioned four times of King Saul, of King David, and David's son, Absalom. Kind of runs in the family there a little bit with David and Absalom. And Joseph, well-built, handsome, good-looking. And my guess is this is, uh, going into the realm of sanctified or unsanctified imagination, my guess is Mrs. Potiphar was probably good-looking too. Or else there may not have been any temptation. Look at verse 6. So, verse 7. After a while, his master's wife, that's Mrs. P, took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. By the way, verse 7 is translated in different translations in some amazing ways. Took notice. One translation has it that uh, she was making eyes at him. And uh, that's probably a good translation. She took notice with her eyes, but then also began the uh, solicitation as well, the invitation with wicked intent. But he refused. 
verse 8. With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. You are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called the household servants and said, look, This Hebrew's come, been brought in to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when I screamed for help, he fled. And here's his coat as evidence. And here is the coat. Obviously, not the coat. But the coat. By the way, this is not the coat of many colors, right? What happened to that coat? The brothers dipped it in animal blood, took it back to their father, and said, I guess Joseph was slain. So Joseph gets a new coat. It's the coat of a slave. And maybe in Potiphar, he was upgraded to a nice slave uniform. But it was a slave coat nonetheless. This is an amazing text of Scripture. As Joseph refuses, uh, the, the time is temptation. And all of us have that in our life. Times of oppression and times of temptation. We get the idea that if we're walking with God, we'll never be tempted. Or if we grow in grace, we'll get to the place where temptation doesn't have its hold on us. But that is not true. If you're a son or daughter of Adam, then there is sin in you and will always be in you, even though you're forgiven and you're a child of God and you're a new creature in Christ, the remaining corruption still dwells within. And temptation has its allure. So this is a time of temptation. And the perspective is holiness. I want to please God. I'm concerned about God. I want to follow him. That's the pattern. Temptation is an interesting thing, isn't it? You and I, as believers, want to say no to temptation, but actually we're quite friendly with temptation. It was Robert Orban, something of a uh, uh, humorist in the vein of a Mark Twain who once wrote, most people want to be delivered from temptation, but they hope that it will keep in touch. That's us and temptation. No temptation, we say, but how convicted, how um, committed are we to that no in the midst of temptation? So here's Joseph in the midst of a very difficult situation. By the way, he might be able to sin and get away with it, some would say. No one's in the house. Thou, God, what's the rest of it? Seest me. So yeah, God is there with his love, but God is also there. He beholds the evil and the good, as Proverbs 15, chapter 3 says. So now he's got to deal with temptation. And by the way, Joseph gives us a wonderful example 
of how you and I need to deal with temptation. I want to share several things with you. This is how you and I can handle temptation. Step number one, recognize that sin offends God. Isn't that what he said? Really, he said, I'm concerned about my master. He's given me everything, and I don't want to offend him, everything except you. But look at verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Is that your perspective when you are tempted to sin? To be honest, many of us would say, if I could get away with it, I would. But I know the consequences are too bad. What about this consequence? If you sin, you will offend a holy God. And I have a fear of offending not only my master, but the God of heaven who watches over me. Secondly, you need to remove every opportunity for sin. I find it interesting that this temptation was almost a daily thing. Did you notice that? Verse 10, day after day, he, she spoke to him, but he refused To even be with her. I'm not going to spend any time with her. So the person who's had a problem with drinking. Who says I'm going to start an evangelistic ministry. By going into the bars and witnessing to. And I say wait a minute. It's not a good idea. Because your weakness. That has been proven and developed in your physiology. As well as your spiritual uh, heart. It's a a bad thing for you to go into that place. Remove yourself from the temptation. A little boy wanted to go swimming with his friends at a camp out. And and the mom knew that he couldn't swim well. So she said, no, you can't go swimming. And he wanted to go. He begged. She said, no, you cannot go swimming. So he's packing a suitcase. And one of his friends noticed he was putting his swimsuit into his uh, suitcase. He said, I thought your mom said you can't go swimming. She He said, yeah, she said, I can't go swimming, but I'm taking it just in case I'm tempted. Just in case I'm tempted. I want to be ready to give in. So he did his best to remove every opportunity. By the way, it says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, this is the old King James, make no provision for the flesh. To fulfill the lusts thereof. That is, give the flesh no opportunity to be satisfied. That's practical, isn't it? Here's, what is this, number three? Run if you have to. Get out of there. That's what Joseph did. He ran. You say, but he left his cloak and the cloak became evidence against him. Yeah, but I like what Matthew Henry says. It's better to lose a good coat than a good conscience. Sometimes we need to just get out of that. You're surprised by temptation. And you don't quite know what to do. Run! And then finally, rely on God and his promises. Joseph had in mind the fact that the word of God... Back in chapter 37, verse 5 through 9, revealed some dreams that one day he would ascend to a place of leadership. And that promise stayed in his heart. I'm sure he cried out to God time and time again, Why, Lord, why? 
But he was also clinging to the promises of God. I don't understand it, but you've promised this, and I'm banking on your word. And that's what you and I need to do in the midst of temptation. Recognize that sin offends God. Remove every opportunity. Run if we have to, and rely through prayer and the scriptures on the precious word of God. Unless there is within us the one who is above us, we will soon yield to everything around us. You and I cannot stand on our own. Read Ephesians chapter 6. We stand in the armor of God against the wiles of the devil. Verse 16 is interesting. She kept the cloak beside her until Potiphar came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came in to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, by the way, this is all a lie, right? I thought everything in the Bible was true. This is, a true, this is truly how she lied. She screamed for help. He came in to make sport of me, but he left the cloak, and I hanged on, I, I was, I'm hanging on to it. Here's the evidence. Circumstantial, by the way, at best. When his master heard the story of his wife, the story that she told him, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Now, honestly, I think the anger is directed toward Mrs. P. Do you ever think of that? He knows these two. This would not be a new revelation for him that his wife had eyes for other people, I'm sure. And he knew Joseph, and he knew that everything Joseph did was blessed of God. And, and the thought now that he is trapped. I mean, if he doesn't defend his wife in this situation against a hated Hebrew, <laughs> he'll lose his position. So he's trapped, and I think he burned with anger because, oh no, I'm going to lose Joseph. And that's exactly what happened. So the scripture tells us, Verse 20, that Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, if you compare that with verse 3 of the next chapter, you'll find out that somehow this prison was connected to Potiphar's palace. It was like house arrest. It was a special place. It was not the worst dungeon in the world. But that's where he was placed. And soon the cream rises to the top, doesn't it? Because there Joseph, in prison, soon was noticed by the warden, verse 22. And he was made responsible for everything in the prison. The cream rises to the top. But I want you to notice one final point. That now Joseph, in the midst of a situation where he's been lied about, he did what was right. And he's suffering horrible consequences for it. That often happens in this wicked world. Now here Joseph, God is with Joseph when he is suffering in Potiphar's prison. Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turn. And hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And Potiphar, Mrs. Potiphar, the one who was used to getting her way, got exactly what she wanted. She got Joseph thrown into prison. By the way, I'm always 
wondering, 13 years later, when Joseph becomes prime minister, how Mrs. Potiphar felt on that day. <laughs> Did she have to stand with all the other crowd and watch as Joseph is paraded now as second to Pharaoh? And he looks down at her. <laughs> it's amazing how God turns the tables. And when the righteous are punished in this life, one day they will be vindicated and paraded with the king of kings and promoted to a place of glory and honor. Even though Joseph in prison now is in charge of the prison, it's still a time of frustration. And his perspective needs to be Sovereignty of God, we've talked about. Holiness to God. But now hope in God. And the last visual is this cup. Because while Joseph's in prison, there are going to be a couple of Pharaoh's servants, the baker and the butler, who are thrown into prison. We'll get into that a little bit. We're just kind of fast-forwarding uh, this, chapter 40, 41. And uh, the best way to remember the story is that the butler didn't do it. These two guys have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams. And in, he says uh, to the cupbearer, the butler, in three days your head's going to be lifted up, and you're going to be restored to Pharaoh. And the baker says, good, good, tell me about my dream. And he says, in three days your head is going to be lifted up, taken off your body. <laughs> That's exactly what the Hebrew says. And in just three days, the cupbearer becomes restored. Pharaoh brings him back, and he's in his place of position. And Joseph says, now when you get up there, cupbearer, remember me in prison. He says, absolutely. You've saved my neck. You've saved my life. I won't forget you. And he did. How many years? I don't know. But years. He does what is right and says no to sin, and he's thrown into prison and then interprets a dream and forgotten, and God is with Joseph. God is with Joseph when he serves in Potiphar's house. God is with Joseph when he is sought by Potiphar's wife. God is with Joseph when he suffers in Potiphar's prison. You get the idea that God never abandons his people? He is with us all the way so that he can bless us and use us and rescue us and vindicate us. Many years ago, in the mid-60s, when I was in Boy Scouts, I remember a camp out where we were trying to earn merit badges. I was trying to earn the merit badge of astronomy, <laughs> which uh, simply involved, I had to point out the Big Dipper and a couple of other constellations. I had to identify them, see them in the night sky, their positions, maybe a little bit about their movement. But I'll never forget, it was late at night. We were out in the middle of nowhere camping. At least I thought it was nowhere. And the scoutmaster says, now we've got to walk, hike a half mile out into the dark woods and into a clearing so we can see the stars at night. Now, I grew up in the semi-city area, just outside of Pontiac, Michigan. I never saw the night sky without lights. And it was an amazing thing. What are those things up there? Well, I knew what they were, but I couldn't believe how many of them there were. 
And someone in this little group said, Scoutmaster, how come we have to walk so far in the middle of the night just to see the stars? Can't we see them back at camp? He said, you can see some of them, but not all of them. He said, the, the lights from the camp are enough lights to, to kind of cover some of the constellations that we want to see. And then he made this statement, as best as I can recall. He says, the nighttime is the best time to see the stars. The darker it is, the brighter they shine. Which means in my darkest hour, God shines his brightest light. And he is with me. And that to bless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we walk through Joseph's life, we are again astounded at his response. And yet it should be the normal response to any follower of Jesus, to anyone who has faith. Faith sees the invisible God that he is real. Faith sees you. Faith embraces your promises and knows that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Faith knows that you are a God who cannot lie and every promise will be fulfilled even if we have to wait years for its fulfillment. Or even, as many of the he uh, heroes in Hebrews 11, we have to wait until the next life before we are vindicated. So Lord, teach us the lesson of faith that even in the midst of suffering you are there. You want to bless those we come in contact with, and show them that the God of heaven lives. Lord, we don't desire the difficult times, the dark days, the trials. We, we don't relish being treated unjustly or being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But Lord, we know someday there will be vindication, and in that, we put our faith and trust in you. So, Lord, in our dark times, may you shine so brightly that we cannot miss you. And we can say, with Moses, the writer of the book of Genesis, the Lord is with us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed.